Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Kimberlyn Leary. Kimberlyn Leary is a senior vice president at the Urban Institute. She's also associate professor of psychology at the Harvard Medical School and an associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. She was a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She teaches degree program and executive education classes in adaptive leadership, negotiation, collaborative problem solving, and leading teams. Dr. Leary is also a senior advisor at the Center of Excellence in Women's Mental Health at McLean Hospital. She's a faculty affiliate for the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School and at the Center for Public Leadership. She's currently a senior fellow at the Bloomberg Center for Cities at Harvard University. From 2021 to 2022, she served as a senior policy advisor to the White House Domestic Policy Council and as a senior equity fellow in the Office of Management and Budget. In both roles, she worked across federal agencies to implement President Biden's executive order on equity. From 2014 to 2015, she was an advisor to the Obama White House Council on Women and Girls, where she helped spearhead the Advancing Equity Initiative to improve life outcomes of women and girls of color. Dr. Leary's current research and scholarly work is centered on leadership, negotiation capacity, equity-focused change management, and large-scale systemic change. For almost 12 years, she served as chief psychologist at the Cambridge Health Alliance in Harvard Medical School, directing the Division of Psychology and its training programs to deliver culturally sensitive care, supporting the hospital's primary care centers, specialty mental health, and acute emergency services. She has a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan, an MPA from the Harvard Kennedy School, and an AB from Amherst College. She's also on the board of trustees at the Austin Riggs Center, the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute, the Folger Shakespeare Library, and the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls. She's trustee emerita at Amherst College. It is with great pleasure that I welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Leary. Today, you will discuss, uh, I understand, psychoanalytic perspectives on implicit bias, race, group dynamics, and how consumer technology may impact how these are lived. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Nicole. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you for that very generous introduction as well. You, you covered the, the my entire career there. <laughs> thank you. And it's quite illustrious. So I'm, I'm really honored. I wanted to highlight that. Well, thank you. You've written and spoken about race and psychoanalysis among a wide range of other ways in which you've talked about race in all of these different leadership roles and so on. But I want to focus for a moment on just psychoanalysis. Could we start by just hearing a little bit about how you think about race, ethnicity, implicit bias, and belonging from a psychoanalytic perspective? Sure. I guess the way I would reframe it a bit is that among my identities is that of being a psychoanalyst, trained as a psychoanalyst, working for many years 
as a psychoanalyst delivering psychoanalytically informed care, psychoanalysis proper, if you will, as well as writing for analytic journals, analytic conferences. But I also have simultaneously, of course, had other identities as an African-American woman, as a psychologist, and as someone whose interests do include psychology beyond psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. So when I think about race and ethnicity and belonging, I don't think so much about them through a psychoanalytic lens exclusively, but what can a psychoanalytic perspective help to illuminate side by side with the research and scholarship and practice that's occurring all over the country and for that matter, all over the globe. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I would say is that psychoanalysts certainly understand history. We believe that history shapes the present. And so if we're thinking about racial experiencing at this moment in time, this very important liminal period of time in still just a quarter in, not yet, of the 21st century, we have to be aware of the history that informs the experience of today. 100 years ago, there were the Rosewood riots in Florida, where an entire community was burned to the ground because of an allegation by a white woman, unsubstantiated, against a Black man for sexual violence. And not only did multiple members, African-American members of that community, lose their lives, they also lost their livelihoods. And in less than 100 days, we're likely to hear the Supreme Court come down with a ruling on affirmative action that most expect will include a reshaping of that tool to bring equitable outcomes to higher education and through higher education. So that's the history in which psychoanalysis is living. Mm -hmm. And it is a profession that's maybe 4,000 strong, maybe 6,000, depending on how you count who's in or who's out, depending on the framework you use. But it's been an organization that has primarily looked at history from the personal side, from your birth through the end of your life, and not the history around which our experiences of life are shaped. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of wonderful psychoanalytic concepts that I think that help us to understand the fear, the anxiety, and also the possibilities of a better and more affirmative way of living in this country in a way that our institutions look like the demographics of our country, Mm -hmm. where the outcomes and opportunities are more equitably shared. And I think that psychoanalysis can and has been part of that by using some of its tools to understand racism, to also understand what really belonging means, what people need to feel like they are seen and visible, and some of its other tools of, I think, a rigorous interest in the truth and a rigorous interest in asking people to take on board complex feelings and complex experiencing in order to provoke change. Mm-hmm. As you're talking, I'm thinking our institutes and our profession, which, you know, 4,000, 6,000 strong, is not at all representative of 
our demographics. That's true. And so That's even true. in our own profession, we don't really, we struggle with recruiting or including or belonging with our own institutes and our own profession. I guess I wonder what you think about that. How might we apply something and, and kind of address it? Yeah. You know, I remember quite some time ago, I was at a conference now, probably about 20 years ago, actually, a similar question was asked from the audience. Mm -hmm. And my response was, well, it's true that African-American mental health professionals aren't here in this room. But the question is also, where are they? Mm -hmm. which, Which platforms do they gather? Where do they find their voice amplified and their perspectives validated? That I thought was as important for the audience to consider as the more traditional approach of how do we get them to come to us. Mm -hmm. That said, psychoanalysis is a complicated profession. It's a profession that sometimes the rhetoric involves leaving behind your other identifications as a psychiatrist or social worker or psychologist in order to take on this new analytic identity. Mm -hmm. That's never made a a great deal of sense to me, because I think that we now know that people have multiple experiences of identity, and it's possible to be a psychologist and an analyst, a psychiatrist and an analyst, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think part of our platform being more inviting means rethinking how we understand the multiplicities of people's identities and their experiencing. The second thing is... To become an analyst requires a very long supplemental training process that is quite expensive. And thinking about the economics of this, I think, is is relevant. And some institutes have, have been working on this in various ways. But also our model traditionally privileges working one-on-one and not thinking about change at scale. And for some clinicians, They want to do both. So I've been pleased with some of the innovations at some institutes where they've looked at that third case, for example, at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. Where I am. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Exploring, could a third case be a community case? Could it be a case where you're delivering care, but not necessarily just to one person in a traditional format? So those are the things that give me some hope. But I think really the other challenge, and this is something if you've been following any of the listserv conversations over the last while, have made yes. <laughs> so very evident that there is some learning, I would say, that our psychoanalytic colleagues need to engage in to better understand what structural bias and systemic racism means and what it actually means in our organization like every other organization. Yes. That is, I think, still something that analysts struggle with because they privilege so much individual autonomy, agency, and the like. Mm-hmm. This is getting me thinking about one of the ideas that I have, and this is maybe getting us further into the interview than, than we're ready for, but I'm really interested in technology as a place of intervention. Mm-hmm to drive change. I'm going to be interested in your thoughts about how you think consumer technology informs or is informed by biases, belonging, kind of social justice initiatives, and so on, because I think it cuts both ways. And I'm really Mm -hmm. interested in that particular, maybe intervening with consumer technology companies 
to drive changes in very particular ways and doing so as an analyst, meaning looking at their unconscious biases as groups as they design these products and services that I believe inform our thinking in ways that we don't understand. What do you think about that idea? I think it's really critical and probably among the next frontiers out there. You know, I don't have much expert knowledge about how Google or anybody else takes their algorithms and uses them to direct information to one person or another. But there's plenty of evidence out there that our biases that we have in our usual exchanges, our non-technology mediated exchanges, show up in technology as well. And so the attention to how we train those algorithms and a commitment to rooting out bias just as in every other system and process, I think would be really critical. And I think it goes beyond the back-end elements of technology, as critical as they are, the software. You know, I've followed just with personal interest the fact that many of our phones, our smartphones, Mm -hmm. are, are really terrible at being able to capture the physical images of people with darker skin. Yes. If you can't use your ordinary cell phone to capture the ordinary moments of your life so that you are ordinarily visible, that tells us something right then and there. Right. And then when the technology is used to determine whether what value you're getting for your house, if you're trying to get it appraised mm-hmm. for sale, or if the technology that's being used to direct you to one form of healthcare or another is disproportionately directing Black patients to more extensive or less extensive forms of care, depending on the particular condition, I think we've got a big problem. So I think the real challenge with technology is that we haven't figured out how to really effectively, we have the mechanisms, we actually have a whole bunch of frameworks and approaches, but they're incompletely executed. But if we haven't figured out the ways to address bias in our other systems, we have to expect it's simply going to be replicated in our online and algorithmic platforms. And that really does need to be a focus of attention in my view. Mm -hmm. Do you think that maybe consumer technology such as cell phones, I mean, you brought up some really interesting examples, and this gets even more problematic when we think of technology as a surveillance tool and the biases Mm, that happen with darker skin. I mean, this this is quite scary, actually. And ethicists have brought this up and folks in public health have brought this up because there's all kinds of diagnostic tools now that work with remote diagnoses that don't pick up things with folks who look different than the standard white person that they've probably trained them on. So the, the question is, are we maybe magnifying biases in really scary ways because tech is now an intermediary for some of these systems? So you're saying we have to root it out in these other systems. Yes. And are we perhaps maybe needing to slow down this AI-driven, tech-driven, uh, machine time kind of mass bias production system quickly? I think you raise a really critical point. Again, you know, this is not my area of technical expertise. I'm following along with everybody else. Me too. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it does seem to me that the technology is ahead of us right now. Mm-hmm. And that is rarely a great thing to just let proliferate. I do think that you are raising a really critical point, which is that because of the scale at which technology operates and the speed and the velocity, that it's not just replicating biases, 
it is enhancing and accelerating them. And that is an argument that I think needs to be made over and over again. I think it goes to how do we penetrate with information the larger systems that shape our lives? A research paper alone doesn't do it. Celebrity voices alone don't do it. The government at the federal, state, and municipal level each have their levers, but no one of them can do it either. Consumers play a role, maybe a more significant role than we tend to think, because what they buy and what they augment is what is continued to be produced. But I don't know that the dangers that you've articulated are ones that most people are actively thinking about. You know, they just use we all use technology in the way it was designed, which is rather mindlessly. Yes. Uh, they don't want us to think about it. That's uh, right. They That's want right. Us to use it. Yes. And I think there's two sides to this. There's also the positives of tech where we've seen more and more with police brutality that folks have used their everyday cell phones to record these kinds of events and magnify and amplify it. So it, in some ways, it's brought a lot of attention and helped fuel, at least in this country, the Black Lives Matter movement Absolutely, is kind of powered by tech, I would say, in some ways. Well, that's true. I mean, Black Lives Matter, the movement has long relied on social media as a way to gather people together, to alert them when necessary, say we need more folks to join us, and to make sure that, in particular, injurious behavior, oppressive behavior, dangerous behavior on the part of authorities, police and others, is documented and shared. Mm -hmm. And yes, that has made a tremendous difference. It has made a difference. It speaks to the tension. You know, one young woman, one 17-year-old young woman took the video of Floyd's murder. And that was an act of profound individual courage and foresight, frankly. I haven't interviewed her, so I don't know precisely what she was thinking. But I think courage, foresight are definitely words I would imagine we could very capably apply to her. And that individual act amplified across technology for a time ushered in genuine change across this country. You know, if you look at that, uh, what uh, George Floyd's murder provoked, in addition to people talking about racism who'd never talked about racism before, who understood something about the talk that Black families have with their children, never heard of that before in the case of some, kitchen table conversations about equity, all the way to $200 billion of private sector investments in various DEIA and equity enhancing initiatives, at least a dozen executive orders that have some dimension that pertain to equity, including two specific executive orders that are about advancing equity in the federal government, dozens and dozens of municipal and state actions as well, spending packages, like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law Inflation Reduction Act, which include in many of their elements that those resources must be distributed equitably to communities. All of that has something to do with Floyd's murder being transmitted to all of us mm -hmm. as an act of one person. There's something about 
the one-to-oneness, the intimacy of that, that I think the information is communicated in this kind of way. It moves everyone because it was directly downloaded to us. There, there was no intermediate, there was no hiding. And I think it was, it was really quite quite extraordinary, quite awful. There was no way to turn away, which was really helpful and really awful in all the ways that it is. That's right. I would say about that, the other element is that the video captured on this Mother's Day, where we're recording this, a man's call for his mother as he was facing his death. It was also a moment where His pleas for breath echoed with all of our fears as COVID was stealing breath across the nation, including in Black and especially in Black and Brown communities with no vaccine at that moment. It was a moment where, in a sense, there was a profound empathy for a multitude of reasons Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That empathy gave rise to some of the societal responses, only a few of which I've mentioned here. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So there's ways in which this speed and the, the intimacy of the phone, how it's just kind of piped into our living rooms and offices directly one to one in many ways has been really negative and really positive in all different kinds of ways. And where we're not always conscious of how it is we're using these these devices and and what it's doing to us as it relates to really important issues. There's another side of this that I want to explore with you, and that is there was a, a really important moment that I don't know got as much attention as George Floyd's murder, of course. The moment that Timnit Gabru, a Black woman who was the highest ranking ethicist at Google at the time, was fired because she raised quite publicly that these tools are driving biases, racial biases. And she was simply dismissed and locked out. She's now founded her own organization. She hires only black and brown folks. She's continuing her cause, but she certainly doesn't have the backing of a large big tech company to continue her projects. That was a moment for me that was really disheartening because I thought that our ethicists were going to protect us. I had the belief that inside of each of these companies, surely there will be someone who is not only interested in making money. Surely there will be someone who recognizes we need to have psychologists and ethicists and anthropologists and so on working on the question of how does tech impact our minds. And at that moment, I realized, no, we're not going to be protected by ethicists. And so now I think maybe psychoanalysts can protect us. Maybe we can think about what is going on unconsciously sadistically, horrifyingly, that we're watching this kind of thing play out uh, in large scale. And I know, you know, there are lots of theorists. And again, you you mentioned writing articles doesn't really necessarily help. Lots of Lacanian theorists, lots of political theorists and so on speaking about this. But I think there needs to be some ground level work in communities that help us either demand a better tech, better for our minds, better for our communities, better for our people, something that addresses the sadism that is involved in these kinds of, I mean, I'm going to call it sadistic, these kinds of acts of marching Timnit out to the door and then keeping the power. I'm I'm not sure. What do you think about the idea that psychoanalysts have something to do here or that maybe we have to intervene in some kind of way that that brings to bear more than just talk at the conscious level? 
I followed that situation at Google that you mentioned just as an interested person that don't have any insider knowledge. But, you know, I think it is not surprising the argument that many of the tech companies make that their products are neutral, (laughs) that (laughs) it's just the technology. It can be used for good or evil. Except they don't let their own children have it. Well, there's that too, of course. (laughs) But the line is that the technology is a sort of neutral platform. They can't possibly exert controls over it. But as you just pointed out, by their own personal behavior, they also tell a different story as private citizens, right? Mm -hmm. Not representatives of their firms. The challenge is that there's so many challenges out there. There are so many communities in America right now, mainly rural black and brown community and black and brown communities, where people just want the tech. They just want broadband access. Getting to better tech is like not even on their radar screen yet. Yeah. They just want access to the tech so they can do ordinary things like make sure their kids can do their homework online or look stuff up on the internet or take a class on Khan Academy, whatever. So that's one version of it. The other is that people do want better tech, but better tech means then trading off on certain kinds of surveillance. And in this country, we have mixed perspectives on surveillance because that too has been used disproportionately in negative ways against Black and Brown communities. I don't think the ethicists will save us. I don't think The politicians alone will save us, and I don't think the psychoanalyst will save us. What I do think is if we zoom out and think about what makes for change when communities demand something different, it doesn't take everybody in the community or the country to demand change for change to start. It takes a relatively small proportion of people to sound the alarm, keep the attention focused, And then work with others as partners to bundle that issue with others and to look for those policy windows or those cultural windows or those liminal spaces where this work becomes critical and it's possible for it to move. Mm -hmm. I do think that the understanding the damage that we do to one another the damage that our psyches can do to one another, in addition to what we can do to our own selves, is where psychoanalysts do have an uncommonly effective voice. And just as Kenneth Clark's doll studies in the 1960s or 50s, I, I can't remember the exact year that the, I guess they were probably were in the 50s. I think so. I don't remember either, but I think so. Yeah, yeah. Sort of showed in TV, you know, the technology of its time, a video or TV, look, here are Black children, quote unquote, preferring white dolls and got people's attention. I think we'd probably be horrified. I know I would be. I don't, of the racialized images that I expect are part of gaming and gaming culture, from what I understand, let alone all of the challenges that we've already mentioned about these algorithms and the potential for them to simply reinforce, if not amplify, disparities and inequalities. This business with gaming is really interesting. From what I understand, there are not enough 
black and brown and women involved in producing games. And therefore, there's kind of this unchecked sort of systematic bias going out in the form of visual imagery and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the, how the games are formatted. And there is a move in the tech industry to hire more women and more black and brown folks to be on those teams designing games. But there aren't enough folks who have had access to computer science education, mathematics, and so on from very early on. And so we have disparities in our schools that then are fueling the disparities in the way we produce all of the products that we produce. And so your work in equity and access is really critical. All of our work in that, in those fields is really critical to making sure that we have a representative group at the table, building the things that are shaping our children's minds. You mentioned Khan Academy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are shaping us all the time, I think, but we don't have the right inputs. Right. During the Obama administration working, I worked for Valerie Jarrett and Tina Chen at the White House Council for Women and Girls. And among the five pillars that are advancing equity for women and girls of color focused on were STEM engagement, beginning with kids in all the ways you mentioned, up through STEM education, up through STEM career engagement, and STEM leadership. And you are exactly right that there is a, there's kind of a window. I mean, anyone can, I guess, learn to code. I I, I don't think that'll be happening for me, but. Um, <laughs> Nor me. <laughs> but I think they're making ways that it's like no code or low code where you can actually develop a concept and then it, the code is just sort of shipped in, in a way. Right. Yeah. yeah well, that sounds great. <laughs> but I think the important thing is that we have to recognize where these sort of critical-ish periods are and be thoughtful about them. One of the things I remember just as a point that was made in 2015 when I was doing this work for the Council on Women and Girls was thinking about college and university first-year classes, these, in many instances, large lectures that are quote-unquote weed-outs. Computing science in some universities is one of those weed-out courses. So if your goal is to figure out who shouldn't learn computing science, you've got a perfect vehicle for doing that. If your goal is how do we include and many more people, then you would rethink that dimension of the educational process. And so I do think there is a part for all to play, but what's challenging is that a lot of this work isn't coordinated. It's like you've got the STEM initiatives with coding camps or Black Girls Code. You've got what the universities are doing with computing science education. You have the gaming community, but they're not, they don't often talk to one another. (laughs) Right. And that's where I think there is a really important role for the kind of podcast you have, for example, where you're trying to create a platform across different approaches to technology. And there'll never be like a superordinate structure that where where all the, I mean, not yet, where all the information is collated and aggregated and accessible. But when people are in conversation and can become fluent across their own particular areas of expertise, then I think there's, you acquire fluency in more than your area of expertise is what I'm saying. Then I think there is more of an opportunity for people to say, okay, if we add in this component from the coding camps, if we add in this component from thinking about 
why do in the way gender operates still in our society, what can we learn from our psychoanalytic principles there that we might be able to revisit how those programs are designed and what the messages are that we give to people as we apparently are inviting them in or subtly inviting them out. Yeah. This is really interesting because if psychoanalytic education takes a long time and costs a lot of money, and many of us spend a great deal of time only speaking to psychoanalysts, we don't really have that kind of cross dialogue with folks who are doing other projects. What you're saying is maybe it's useful for us to get outside of our consulting rooms and speak to folks who are doing things in the world and collaborate. I have been saying that for a while now. (laughs) I just want to amplify it. I just want to amplify it. Yeah. Yeah. We spoke earlier about the listserv conversations. And I would say that the listservs in the American Psychoanalytic Association, I had a chance to moderate a big panel years ago, SciBC, which was one of these early open platforms in the psychoanalytic space. It's transitioned to something else now. But what's been happening for these last couple of months on the Americans of Psychoanalytic Association's listservs has been nothing short of, I would say, a remarkable experiment. For the first time in my years in the profession, which has you know, now been quite a number, I would say that the discussions, they've always been heated, <laughs> you know, and people get their backs up about one thing or another, or they demand that someone moderate the forum, or they request that people be nicer to one another. That's stayed the same. But what's different, I would say, is that there has been an invitation from some on the listserv to reckon very explicitly with the world outside of psychoanalysis and to reckon with points of view that diverse analytically oriented clinicians have, but which typically are not represented in their classroom or supervisory spaces. And that's one of the things the Holmes Commission has identified. But there has been this, I would say, challenging explosion but a fulsome experiment. And I think that those listserv conversations tell me that there is a way for technology to sponsor, as as it has here, just new moments of liminality. What we do with them remains to be seen. But I would say that these last months of conversation on the listserv have been a remarkable experience in a different kind of democratic engagement within the American Psychoanalytic Association than I've seen before. Mm -hmm. That's a really hopeful way to look at what's going on. I mean, it's been, they've been very intense discussions and very painful at times, but that's a really hopeful way to think about technology's role in the democratic process or technology's role. There's a lot that's published about how people will be more extreme on technology, both extremely polite or positive and extremely negative because you don't have the facial cues. So you can kind of hide or anyway, there's there's plenty published in the consumer research kinds of, of venues about how do we get people to tell the truth in surveys and so on. I think when applied to this situation, people are more inclined to perhaps participate or put their hat in the ring or say what they need to say. It does provide a different kind of medium. And you have a very hopeful take on that, I think. I like to be hopeful. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) A lot will depend on what we do with what we're learning from. 
You know, let me just give an example of another small organization, even smaller than APSA, that I think has done something quite remarkable in as a response to George Floyd's murder. And I would say that this conversation on the uh, APSA listserv is a sort of longer term response to George Floyd's murder. That's my own sense of it. Psychoanalysts tend to move a little more slowly than because we take into consideration the unconscious as well as the conscious. But I'm on the board, as I mentioned, of the Shakespeare, Folger Shakespeare Library. Now, they too, like most organizations, were kind of rocked by George Floyd's murder. And they too looked internal to the organization about what could we do. They are a small entity. They're based in Washington, D.C. They have run various kinds of community engagement programs like Shakespeare on the subway. I don't think that's exactly the term they use. They brought in hip-hop artists to engage with the poetry of Shakespeare. Very innovative community programs. They work with schools. But the most interesting conversation, and I think it's just a conversation at this point, but I've been fascinated by it, that they are starting to engage with is that when Shakespeare was writing in England, the major works was also more or less consonant with the time of the Middle Passage, when Africans were being enslaved and brought over in those horrible slave ships. And they started to think about, we as an organization started to think about, what does it mean that co-determinous in time, these two events were taking place? And again, where that will go, unclear. But I think it's that kind of bringing together of perspectives and reckoning with them without necessarily knowing where you're going to go with it, but not dropping it because it's inconvenient or unattractive or it's not palatable, is where I hope psychoanalysis will go through those conversations and so many more with saying there's so much to value in the psychoanalytic approach, but there's also much to take a second and third and fourth look at because of the way in which it has replicated the major societies that make up the vast majority of its members. So I am hopeful, but I think that hope comes with what will come out of this and where the profession itself, not just the people in the profession, but the people who write the admissions criteria and write the graduation thresholds, and who also are representing the curriculum, where they identify roles for them that they can play ahead. I think that will be important. You're talking about culture and creativity and history being really important to bring to bear on all of this, it sounds like. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Which is also, again, very hopeful and exciting in some kind of way. It gives, it takes all of these feelings, for me at least, it takes all of these feelings that are really laden with intensity and worry and puts them into a place of, oh, I I can be creative. I can bring two things together. I can look at culture and context. That's interesting. And that could be exciting. Hmm. And if I'm going to look at that and be excited by it and want to make a difference, I also have to accept some narcissistic limits that I alone cannot make change. Yes, yes. I will require partners and community. And that's where we also need to look, in my view. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about, you know, the majority of the people on the show, the majority of the listeners 
our analysts or are interested in our clinicians. Mm -hmm. The next season is going to be all folks in tech or philosophers or people who are in the world dealing with tech and are interested in how it affects our minds and our communities. So we're going to have sort of two different seasons, two different kinds of, of foci. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say to the analysts or anything to say to the folks in tech about where you think we should develop, anything more to say, where you think we should develop in order to strive toward tech being more useful, more equitable, more accessible, and to promote belonging and to protect us from some of these horrors that we've talked about around surveillance and inequities and so on. Any advice? Well, I guess my advice would be that dialogue might be relevant. It may be eye-opening for some of our ethicists and some of our technologists to hear through analytic stories, appropriately protective of patients' identities, about what tech has enabled and what damage it does. Likewise, I think it may be important for analysts who are often proud of what they don't know about tech, <laughs> to see themselves as having pathways into the effective use of technology. We all became another experiment, you know, it was just fascinating to me is that for all the years of debates about can you do teleanalysis, can you do analysis over the phone or video call, you know, in like two weeks. <laughs> we all did it. Yes. <laughs> we did it. Yes. And we did it. It's so important to recognize this. We did it because it was in our interest. We learned because it was obligatory if we wanted to work. It was no longer a debate. It was actually vital. When things are vital, when they are in our interest, we are willing to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that reckoning of what's really in our interest or what's a, an interest that's further out. We talk about it sometimes, but we didn't put together long-term task forces on what to do with COVID. We didn't convene study groups. And we acted and assumed that we would have to, based on our actions, innovate again. We'd have to execute and learn and then learn through that execution. That's what I would like to see more of just in our world, in and across these worlds. So I'd love to see a conversation between technologists and ethicists and psychoanalysts talking about how they differently understand change. What might be possible for analysts to borrow, if you will, some of the models of change that others have, and for technologists and ethicists to be able to recognize some of the values and insights about change that analysts have, and for us not to fall into familiar binaries of fast and slow, but of change taking the, the speed it is required, given the interests and issues at stake. I know you're currently working on a staggering number of projects. You're involved in so many different initiatives. One of them that I want to highlight is that you're writing about making equity work at scale, which I can't wait to read when it's when it's out there. Is there anything you'd like to share about this project, any of the projects that you're involved in, and anything we've talked about today? It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm so uh, appreciative that you invited me to be in dialogue with you. I am interested in trying to put together 
some of the amazing and not to ever have been anticipated experiences that I've had working at the federal government at that level of scale with work I've been privileged to do teaching mayors and senior officials through the Bloomberg Center for Cities with conversations I've had with those in psychoanalytic institutes and with fellow clinicians. I'm just interested in trying to figure out for myself what insights have we can we collectively take away from these first years of our 21st century as we prepare for the second half, the second quarter of our 21st century? And I hope to put those together in a set of essays, probably I expect will be co-authored with a colleague. And I'm very, very excited about that project. It's the thing that I think is most fun. and We'll be putting a lot of time to that in the next few months through the end of this year. Wonderful. I can't wait. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Kimberlyn Leary. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. We will begin in the fall with the second season of Technology in the Mind, where we will interview philosophers, psychoanalysts, and folks in technology. We'll begin the season with Stephen Cognetta, a former Googler, founder of Exponent, a consultancy that helps tech workers find their dream jobs, and founder of Hack Mental Health, the world's largest mental health hackathon. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.